Okay. We're in what I consider to be one of the most uh, strategic sections of the Bible, uh, right in the heart of the book of Romans. Uh, we started last week with chapter 6. I've given you a uh, outline. This was done many years ago, uh, so I haven't put it on uh, computer yet, that is in the sense of having it all done properly. I probably will do that shortly. But I just want us to see where we are in the entire book so we don't get uh, lost in the details so much we forget where we're going. Now, as you recall, when we opened, we looked at the fact that all of humanity, mankind, is under the wrath of God. That's the first three chapters. We're under the reign of sin in chapters, chapter 1. we under the reign of the law in chapter 2 and 3. And we're under the reign of death in the last part of chapter 3. Then, from verse 21 of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4, we have salvation coming in. We could say that's condemnation in that first section. In fact, that's the way I have it in your outline. Then we come to salvation uh, through the death of Christ, through his being our substitute on the cross. He took the penalty for our sin. Um, that's chapters 3 and 4. And chapter 4 especially, we looked at the life of Abraham, who is the father of the faithful, he is a model for uh, those who place faith in Jesus Christ, who are saved apart from works. Remember that. Now we're in that middle section, chapters 5 through 8, where we come into the glorious deliverance of the believer from sin and the law. We are free from the wrath of God. In chapter 5, we looked at what it meant to be in Christ, under the reign of grace in Christ. That was chapter 5. In chapter 6, that we started to look at last time, we saw that we were not under the reign of sin uh, because of our identification with Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Uh, chapter 7, which we'll be looking at tonight, we're not under the reign of the law anymore. And I remember back in the first section, we were under the reign of sin, we were under the reign of the law, we are under the reign of death. Now in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, it shows that we are not under the law, the power, the dominion of, of our sin, law, or death anymore because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And tonight we're going to try to finish chapters 6 and 7. Um, and when we come to chapter 9, we come to a whole different focus. We look at Israel. Uh, but we will leave that for now. I just want you to see where we are as far as what we have covered so far. We were under, we were under sin, under law, under death. Because of the death of Christ and our identification with him, we've been released, we've been freed from all of those uh, dominions or power over our lives. And that's what we'll be looking at tonight. Now, getting to our notes... 
We'll see now that the believer is not only dead to the power of sin, but also to the power of the law. Now, this is a very important section because a lot of believers are confused about the law, the, the impact of the law in our life today, or the place of the law in our life today. So, we're going to go through this uh, a little slowly because we want you to understand. And if you have questions or comments, please feel free to ask. Now, let's do a little review. In Romans 6, 1-14, that's what we looked at last time, Paul's argument is that living in sin is entirely inconsistent with the gospel. Living in sin is entirely inconsistent with the gospel. Because living in sin is the opposite of what justification is all about. We talked about justification made right before God because of our being in Christ. Salvation is accomplished when the Holy Spirit baptizes a person into the person and work of Christ. Remember, we talked about this last time. By this baptism, we are joined with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, this is a truth that you have to lay a hold of by faith, in the sense that you're not going to be able to understand the depth and the detail of all this means. What does it mean to be identified with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? But God says it's true nonetheless. He looks at everything that happened to Christ as having happened to us once we place faith in him. Water baptism is a symbol, an acting out of that which has already occurred in spirit baptism. We're talking about baptism by immersion, not sprinkling. This is why we insist that baptism should be by immersion, where a person is placed under the water, all right? That symbolizes his being buried with Christ. And then he comes up out of the water. That symbolizes him coming up as a new person and now enjoying the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. Paul appeals to this baptism what it achieved and its implication. He's, remember he talked about being joined and being grafted into Christ and all of that. Alright? Our union with Jesus Christ shows us that continuing to live in sin is outrageous. It's shocking and detestable. We should not even think about continuing in sin simply because we have been redeemed by Christ and we don't face judgment anymore. Paul says that's inconsistent with truly being a regenerated person. Because if we, in Christ, died to sin, Paul says, how is it that we could even entertain the thought of continuing to live in it? They just don't go together. You see? They're incompatible. And besides this, we were raised to new life, resurrected life. Jesus, by his resurrection, was transformed. Now, please think about this very carefully. This is a sila moment, all right? Think, consider. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he came into, in fact, he brought about an entirely new sphere of spiritual living that uh, did not exist before he was resurrected. 
He died once, but now he lives forever in righteousness. He died to the power of sin once. That means what? Because we were baptized in his death. What? That means we died to it once. You see? And so if we are in Christ now, how can we insist or persist in living as we once did as unbelievers? It's, Paul says that's just impossible. You cannot do it. You see? It's impossible for that to happen. Our conduct then as Christians should be consistent with what took place at our conversion. We became new. Our lifestyle, therefore, should be transformed. Continuing to live in sin is inconceivable, Paul says, because it is inconsistent with all that took place when we were justified by faith in Jesus Christ. He says the two just don't go together. Life and death cannot be mixed. Coexist. You see? Sin and righteousness cannot coexist. You cannot be regenerated and live all the time like an unregenerate person. And so Paul calls upon his readers now to live in a way that is consistent with this reality. So that sin must no longer be allowed to reign over us. Now when he uses the word to reign, he means to have power or to have dominion over us. Instead, we should present our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. And this is to be an ongoing presentation. Um, as we talked about last week, our bodies, um, our bodies are the means, the instruments through which sin is manifested. We used our faculties, the members of our body in the past, before we were Christians, to commit sin. Paul says, now what you need to do as a Christian is to go on now presenting your members of the body unto righteousness, not sin. All right? We can do that now because we are in Christ. <clears throat> the second argument that Paul gives for ceasing to live in sin is found in the latter part of Romans 6. We looked at this last time, we're just reviewing it because this is so important. I remember this is the pastor I'd saying that only the Holy Spirit can really get you to hold on to this, to know what it means to be in Christ. And, and so on. Those who would advocate living in sin would do so under the banner of liberty. In other words, some people would say, all right, since I have been redeemed and I don't face condemnation anymore, I am free to sin. Because if I sin, I manifest, um, I give God an opportunity to show his grace. Because remember Paul says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So actually they had people who say, well, that means the more I sin, the more God's grace will be manifested. Paul said, that's foolishness. You don't think along those lines. Paul refutes this error by raising the banner of slavery. And he's going to contrast slavery and freedom. And he's going to say, what you're talking about as liberty really shows that you are still enslaved. And he's going to describe now what freedom really means in Christ. It does not mean freedom to sin, but it's freedom to become a slave of righteousness. You just change masters, is what he's saying. We still have a master, but now that master is Christ, that master is righteousness, not sin. 
So Paul says, freedom is a misnomer. In reality, everyone is a slave and must choose one of two masters. Unsaved men are the slaves of sin. In reality, they really cannot choose uh, righteousness because they are enslaved to sin. That's the master. They have no choice, though they think of themselves as free. This is a part of Satan's deception. Mankind, apart from Christ, thinks they're free to do what they want, but that's not true. They're only free to do what the sinful nature tells them to do. You understand that? Like I say, practically speaking, if you really get a hold of this truth, it can change your life. It really can. It gives you a whole new outlook. It's a, it's a perspective and a mindset of victory and triumph, not defeat. You see? Not defeat, but victory. Our choice to become a slave can be either conscious or unconscious. Now, you might think, how can that be? Well, if you think through your own life, you will find that to be the case. Because the more you learn about Christ and the things in his word, you sort of unconsciously adopt what the scriptures is teaching. In other cases, you do it consciously where there's a crisis that takes place in your life. And as a result, um, people call it consecration or rededication or something like that. But to continue to present oneself to sin is to remain a slave to sin. In other words, no matter how much you say that you walked down the aisle or held up your hands, an invitation two, five, six, ten years ago. If you are consistently and continually living in sin, a, a sinful lifestyle, you are still a slave to Satan and to sin. You've not been regenerated. That's what Paul is saying. And that's a strong, strong statement he, he makes. Very few, for instance, people choose to become drug addicts. Very few choose to become addicts. They begin by sampling drugs by dabbling with them, they think they are in control. You'll hear a person even who drinks, say, man, I, could, I, I know when to stop, right? I know when I've had enough. That's how they start, thinking that they are in control. But soon, they find out that the drug is the one who's in control. So the drug controls or enslaves them and they are no longer free. So it is with sin. The dabble with sin is to become enslaved to it. Now you think back in your own life. Uh, pornography is like that. You start just looking at this picture, that picture, you think I can control, and all, all of a sudden you find out you cannot control yourself. You go looking for uh, books or photographs or movies or whatever it is. You become enslaved to pornography. To be enslaved by sin is to put yourself on the road to death. That's what Paul concludes in verse 23 of chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. Right? And He's he, he, he just trying to show that uh, when you commit yourself to a sinful lifestyle, you're headed towards spiritual death. That's his point. Paul points out two options. Slavery to sin and slavery to God. That's it. They have two different destinies. Death and life. Put in this light, remaining in sin is remaining a slave to sin and pursuing death. You're actually going after death. You're investing a lifestyle 
to be paid off in debt. That's what Paul is saying. All right? Now, that's the argument in chapter 6, and it's a powerful book. Paul's third argument against living in sin is in chapter 7 now that we're going to look at the first six verses. It is really just an extension or illustration of his, the one, the argument we just talked about. But now it's based upon the relationship between marriage and the law. He wants to emphasize the fact that we are dead. And therefore, if we are dead, that means there's certain things that don't affect us anymore, don't have any more power over us. And he brings in the illustration of what it means to be married. All right? A woman who is married is not free to remarry because the law forbids it. Now, he's talking to his Jewish audience. All right? He's talking to his Jewish audience here. And this is what we call the law of marriage. There was, once you are married, you're not free to marry someone else. That's bigamy, right? The law forbids bigamy. The Bahamian law also forbids it. All right? Only death frees the woman to remarry another man. Not divorce, only death. All right? If her husband dies, she is freed by his death. Freed from the bond that held them legally. So what? She could marry again and not be called an adulteress. This is an illustration now. So please turn to it. Uh, Romans chapter 7. And I want you to read that. I don't have it on here. I want us to read it this time. Um, Pastor Oliver, can you would you read those verses? Verses 1 through 6, chapter 7, please. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. Okay, now keep your Bibles open to that passage as we go through it, please. Because that's very important. That's Paul's illustration. Now, what he's trying to show is that justification was never intended to serve as a license for sin. In other words, you know, some people says, well, you, do you believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved? If you say, yeah, so well, that means you could go and do everything, anything you want. Paul says, no, that's not the purpose. We have died in Christ so that we now have the freedom to choose a new master. Yeah, we've died to Christ, so we can choose 
to use the illustration, a new husband or a new wife. While sin was once, while sin once ruled over us, it need not do so any longer. Why? We're dead to it. We are freed from the dominion of sin by death. And Paul is repeating this again and again. Now we can be joined to another. That's Jesus Christ. While the fruit of one's union with sin is death, the fruit of one's union with Christ is righteousness which results in life. That's what he's teaching. All right? And this is an important doctrine, so please understand it. As I say, it could change your life. It really can. Now, there's something very interesting and important about what Paul says in verse, the verses we just read. The law played a part in our bondage. Because he's, why this is important because he's going to talk about the law. The law played a part in our bondage. Now, to carry it over to the marriage, he's saying the law played a part in telling us our relationship to our spouse. All right? Because it was the law that kept us in that marriage. If the law wasn't there, we'd go marry all kinds of people. That's what Paul is saying. But now, this is important now. Please notice this. It was not the law that was put to death. Some people like to say that uh, the, the law was put to death. The law died. But the law didn't die. It was us who died. You get that? It was us who died. We were put to death with Christ. Not the law. The law is still alive. Now this is important, because you see, it's not the law which is the big problem, it's us. It is the weakness of our sinful flesh that is the problem. Now we're going to see this as we go through, but I want you to understand that right now. The law is not the problem. The problem is the weakness of our sinful flesh to keep the law, to obey it. But now, we can see that justification was never intended to serve as a license for sin. Justification has as its goal righteousness, which leads to eternal life. To think that one who is justified can continue to live in sin as he used to is outrageous, Inconceivable and disgusting, Paul says. Paul says, let no one dare to think such thoughts. He says, God forbid. How shall we who have died to sin continue therein any longer? All right. So, this is such an important teaching. He teaches it again and again and again. Let's look at the passage now. He states the principle in verse 1. He says, know you not, brethren... For I speak to them that know the law, speaking especially to the Jews, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. I'm using the King James because we're more familiar with this, with the King James in the teaching, and I want you to see it here. The law as a principle, by that I mean, when he's talking about the law of marriage, he's not necessarily talking about the law of Moses. All right? Any law, 
The law as the principle is only binding during a person's lifetime. Is that true or not? Paul is addressing his remarks specifically to Jewish Christians who knew the law of Moses. However, the principle concerning one's relationship to law and death applies to law in general. The law says you're supposed to drive 50 miles an hour on a certain road. I die. Does that rule has any, does that law have anything over me? No, I'm dead. That's what Paul is saying. Realize that you're dead. And so what, anything that the old nature told you, you don't have to respond to. You see? Now he illustrates it. The woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law. So that she has no, that she is, she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. That's Paul's illustration of what he's talking about our being dead to sin. And it gives us now the ability to marry someone else. To be bound together to someone else. Right? This simply means then, according to the law of Moses, the marriage relationship is dissolved only by death, which alone makes possible a new legal relationship. The law, the law's power ends in death. That's understood. Right? All right. Now he applies it to the Christian in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Now in chapter 6, he said we were dead to sin, the power of sin. Now he's telling us we're dead to the power of the law. Dead to the law by the body of Christ, that we should be married to another. And then he tells us who is other, even to him who is raised from the dead, that's Christ, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And so this is how he applies this particular illustration. The husband who dies is the old man under the rule of law. The husband who dies is the old man under the rule of law. The death experience is the old man's co-crucifixion with Christ. The old man's crucifixion with Christ. The wife who is freed is our new man under grace. The wife who is freed is our new man under grace. The other, or the wife, new man, is free to marry. No, the other, the wife who the new man is free to marry is Christ. The result of this union is fruit unto God, righteousness. That's Paul's point for using the illustration. The believer, due to his death with Christ, is released from the bondage of the law, that's the principle, and is now married or joined to Christ in order to bear or produce righteousness that pleases God. Remember we talked about how the believer is grafted into Christ, the same way a uh, plant or a leaf is grafted into another tree, right? That's what happens. But we are grafted into Christ so we could produce righteousness. 
fruit of our grafting into Christ is right, not sin. You see? The implication is that those under the law could not produce fruit unto God. Which means righteousness or sanctification. Now, you're talking about sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is actually what takes place, begins to take place in your life once you become a Christian. From that moment on, you're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. That's sanctification. Becoming more and more like Christ. See, when you read Romans 8, you're going to see we're in that sanctification period. We're being saved, redeemed, and all of that. We're waiting to be glorified. And that's we right now in that place for sanctification. And we should be coming more and more like Christ every day. You see, that's a sign, an indication, the fact that we really have placed faith in him. All right. In order for sanctification to occur, one had to be freed from the law and married to another who is Christ. In other words, he's telling us now, now here's the point. The law cannot sanctify us. Earlier in chapter 6, he was telling us the law couldn't save us. Obeying the law works, couldn't save us. Now what he's trying to show is now that we are saved, the law cannot sanctify us. Works. You see, what is associated with law is works. Why? Because law tells us we got to keep something, we got to do something, but it doesn't give us the power to do it. Right? You see? Now, this is a believer, this is the position of every believer in Christ. We are freed from the law to be joined to Christ. We can practice this truth. And what truth? The truth that we, because of our identification with Jesus Christ, can become just like him. Our life can be a life of righteousness. Christ now lives only to please God. Isn't that right? That's how we're supposed to be living. That's where the newness of life comes in. The basic point of the illustration is that the believer, because of the death of his old self with Christ, was freed or delivered from the demands of the law. And now as a new creation, he became joined or married to Christ so that he or she can now produce a life of righteousness. That's why one of the marks of a genuine, genuine Christian is righteousness, doing which pleases God. What is right before God, what is right before man. You see? That's an evidence the person is truly being born again. Now, in our past position, under the control of the old man, the law stimulated fleshly desires which resulted in spiritual death. Paul is going to show now the bad effects of the law. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Now notice that carefully. When we were in the flesh, that means when we were still unsaved, the motions of sins, the, 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 the activity of sin, which were by the law, in other words, the things that the law told us to do, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Here's the point. He's saying, believe it or not, 
because of the nature of our sin nature, when the law spoke to us about doing something, it actually encouraged us to sin. We use that today. You say, you tell a little child, don't touch that. What are they going to do? Touch it. Now, if you didn't tell them that, they probably wouldn't do it, you know. But as soon as you tell them that, they're going to, this is what Paul is saying. He says, the law, by the very fact that it tells us not to do something, it triggers something in us to do it. To do the very thing it tells us not to do. Paul is referring to the believer's past position as an old man under the curse of Adam. In that, con- in that condition, the Jew, but in principle anyone who depended upon human effort to save them or to produce righteousness, was actually motivated by the pr- that principle, the principle of law, to result in just the opposite of what was desired, death rather than life. Now, th- this is a very important truth here to learn about the law. The law, the very law that tells you not to do something, triggers something in our unsaved nature, uh, our fallen nature, that causes us to do what it tells us not to do. The same way when we tell a child not to do something, don't walk on the grass, don't touch red paint. Everybody like to touch, see with red. Isn't that right? That's the principle Paul is talking about here. In our present position, though, as believers, freed from the law, freed from the law, and married to Christ, the body of sin, now, that's our physical body, the means or agent used by the old self to commit sin, has been made inoperative, and we now operate on the basis of the spirit rather than the letter of the law. Uh, Let me try to illustrate that. You have little electric toys, right? Doll babies that cry and walk and all of that, right? You take that and you wind it up and the baby is talking, moving and everything else. The battery runs out. What happens? Yeah. Everything is dead. It doesn't move. It doesn't do anything. Right? That's what happens when we die to sin. We become like the the battery is taken out of us in relation to sin. So we come, but the body is still there. The legs are still there. The arms are still there. The eyes are still there. But it's not anything. Now what happens is when we're born again, the spirit is the new battery that takes the place. And that winds us up. So now the same feet, the same legs, the same eyes, everything else, But now, rather than using it to commit sin, we use it to do what? To perform righteousness. You see the point? Because we have a new energy source, the spirit, and not sin, the old nature. That's why he says, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. A whole new way of life has come about now. Our energy source is different. We are plugged into a different kind of power now. That's what he's saying. Notice again, it is not the law that was put to death. But the old self under Adam that we call the old man. The new self or the new man is not married 
joined to or under the dominion of the law anymore. He is now under the dominion of Christ and lives within the sphere of grace, not law. See, that's another important thing. Once we've been regenerated, we've come out of the sphere of law, and now we're in the sphere of grace. Grace operates now, not law. That's why in the book of Galatians, when Paul was talking to them, he says, remember what he charged them? You've fallen from grace because they're going back to the law. You see, that doesn't mean they lost their salvation mind. They didn't lose their salvation. But he says, if you are going to try to be sanctified by using the law, you've fallen from grace. It's like, it's like a fine illustration. Well, I was talking to Nathan yesterday, and I told him that my finger got cut with a power saw. All right? You know what a power saw is? They use it to cut things up real quick, right? Now, let's say you're a carpenter. And you always use to using a hand saw. That's all you're doing. Boom, 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 boom. You know what I mean? And, and uh, somebody gave you a power saw. All right? Um, and you started using the power saw. Boy, I love this. A couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, the friend comes back. And lo and behold, you're cutting the, the wood with your hand saw again. The fellow comes up to you and says, man, why are you doing that? Say, you got the power saw here. You have fallen from the power saw to the hand saw. That's what he means. In other words, you have the real means of power here, but you're trying to use your own power. You see? So you've fallen from grace when you go back to doing things, either to be saved or to be sanctified. Grace is what you should hold on to. That's the true power source here. All right? Now, he goes on to another section now in this chapter. Boy, I got it for the crooked my thought. Sin and the law. Because Paul has taught that the believer has died to sin in chapter 6, and now he's taught us that he's died to the law, it might be concluded by some that the law is sinful. See, a lot of people, Christians, have the idea that the law is no good. But Paul is going to teach just the opposite. Paul is going to teach that the law is good if it is seen for what it is, what it was designed by God to do. So we can't blame the law. We have to blame us, ourselves, as to how it's handled. So here's the question in verse 7. What shall we say then? In other words, in light of Paul's teaching in chapter 6 that we've died to sin, and in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, that we've died to the law, what shall we say then is the law sin? If we die to it, it must be sinful. Since we died to sin, you know what I mean? Therefore, the law must be sin. Now, notice Paul's answer in, 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 verse, in verse 12. In, in the latter part of verse 7, rather. God forbid. That's a strong statement. May it never be. Banish the thought. No way, Jose, is what he's saying. All right? The law is not sin, is what he's saying. In other words, he says, the premises are correct, but the conclusion is false. Now, let me explain that. Uh, those of you, are you familiar with logic? 
right? Now, help me then, Barbara, with logic. If two premises are correct, what does that mean? What is the result? If two premises are correct, then the conclusion is correct. If the two premises, now you can have more than two, mind you, but not two premises. If they are correct, the idea that all the premises are correct, then the conclusion has to be correct. But that, here is one case where that is not true, Paul says. Let's look at it. Here the premises. The believer is dead to sin, chapter 6, and the believer is dead to the law. Conclusion. The law is in the same category of sin. It is sinful. You see how they argue? Now, logically, that is true. This is why I say that we don't only have human logic. We also have theologic, God logic, and God's logic is different from man's logic. Let me explain. Every man is a model. Every man is mortal. Pastor Aubrey is a man. Is every man mortal? Yeah, that premise is true. Is Pastor Aubrey a man? That is the yes. The conclusion, therefore, is he's mortal. Pastor Aubrey is mortal. You see? All right. Jesus Christ is man. No man is God. Therefore, Jesus is, let me put that, Jesus is a man, no man is God. Therefore, Jesus is, logically, he's not God. Logically, he's not God. But theologically, he is. You see, you see what I'm saying? You come to the same thing here now. Let's look at it. Paul says, right premises, the wrong conclusion. The law brought Paul to recognize his sin. The law brought Paul to recognize his sin. He, he explains that. The law caused Paul to recognize his sin. He says, it stirred up evil desires within his fallen self and led to his death. This is Paul looking back upon his experience before he was saved. Paul was a Pharisee, a deeply religious person, meaning that he was a model to other Pharisees. But he was not a believer. Looking back, Paul says he now realizes three things. Remember now, Paul boasted about how he kept the law. But now he recognizes three things. First, the law revealed sin within him. He says, Nay, I would not, I did not know sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. He said, It was the law that revealed what sin was to me and in me. In other words, the law enabled him to put a name to his desires, not only his actions. You see, a lot of people only look at sin and what you do. Paul says, now the law made me realize 
sin was even in my desire, in my thoughts. He could do something to curb his actions, but he could do nothing to curb his thoughts or desires. That's where Paul found himself. Paul could turn away from lusting after a woman. He could look in a different direction, but he still had it here. You see? Secondly, the law aroused sin with him. It didn't only reveal sin, it aroused sin in him. Now, listen carefully to this verse. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment. In other words, what? Sin, using the opportunity of the law, thou shalt not wrought in me, worked in me, all manner of concupiscence. What does that mean? You got another version there? Cover, well, coveting? That's the only one? Coveting? Yeah, anyone, any other, any other version? Alright, that, that's alright. All way of covetousness or I thought it was another word. Anyway, it brought in me all manner of ideas, evil desires is the idea. Alright? And he explains it. For without the law, sin was dead within him, as far as his thoughts were concerned. Because he was only involved with action. That's what the Pharisees, all they were concerned about was outward behavior, not inward. That's why I remember Jesus told them, like your dead man's, you you're like uh, like a dead man's tomb. You're all nice outside, but inside is rotten bones. This is what he's saying. The law was powerless before. I'm sorry, uh, sin was powerless as far as his thinking was concerned. Before the law, there was freedom from an accusing conscience. Because there was no objective criteria or standard by which to be judged. In other words, if you didn't have something written down or stated, no matter what you thought in your mind, you couldn't say it was sin. Because you had nothing to judge it by. The coming of the law changed all of that. It caused one to be aware of his sin. Because he had a standard to measure it by. Not only that, the law by its very nature impacted upon the sin nature with man in such a way that it actually motivated him to break the law. It actually motivated him to break the law. Paul also found out that the law only punishes one for breaking them, but does not enable to is not does not enable or reward them for keeping them. The Lord tells you, I'll punish you, but it doesn't say I'm going to reward you or give you the means by which to keep them. See, Paul says he found all of this out after he became a Christian. But back then he was struggling with this. He was struggling with this issue. And he says finally that the law results in death. He says, I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came... Sin revived and I died. Now, follow this now, because this is a very confusing passage. 
And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, he means sin in him, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And by the law, it slew me. He's talking about sin within him. See, this sin within him wasn't revealed until the law came. Remember now, Paul is reflecting back upon his experience as an unbeliever. But now, as a believer, he has the right perspective and understanding on the function and nature of the law. He understands why he was going through all of those turmoils. In verse 12, he states what he has learned from his past experience. He comes up to the right conclusion. This is what he says. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So what he's saying is now your premises might be right. But your conclusion is wrong. The law is not sinful. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and just. And it is good. What he's trying to show is the problem is not the law. The problem is the sin that indwells the individual. His point again is that it is not the law that is the problem, but rather the sin nature or principle within man. To the man without Christ, the natural man, the law is an instrument of death. But to the believer in Christ, it is holy, it is just and good. Paul brings us up in Galatians again when he talks about that the law was given to bring us to Christ. Remember that in Galatians? The law was as a what? A teacher, schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But that's all it could do. It could show us our need for Christ. But it couldn't, in itself, deliver us. But now, if it is true that the law is good and holy and just, another question comes up. Is the law the cause of death? Was then that which is good made death unto me? Because that naturally comes up. If the law wasn't uh, sinful and it was uh, not anything that was bad then. Was, did God use something good in order to bring death to me? To cause me to realize my sinfulness? Again, he answers the same way. God forbid. This is a false conclusion, although the premises are correct. Here are the premises. The law is God's agent for revealing sin. That is true. The law is holy, just, and good. That is true. The law brought death. That is true. These are the service. Conclusion. The law is the cause of death. That's the logical answer, uh, argument, right? Paul makes a correction. He says, it is indwelling sin, not the law that is the cause of death. This is in verses 13 through 14 of chapter 7. The sin principle indwells the believer as well as the sinner. 
Now, here is the big surprise. A lot of Christians say, okay, we've just gone through the fact that we've been identified with the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. We joined to him, united with him. We dead to sin, we dead to the law, all of that. Now I'm free from everything. Paul says, oh no. Did that same principle that worked in you when you were unregenerated, unregenerate, that same principle comes over with you. The new person still has that principle within them. Now you think it'd be gone, but it's still there. See, this, this is the mystery for Paul. And he didn't find deliverance until the end of chapter that we see now. Notice this. Sin that it might appear sin, sin to be sure of sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, soul under sin. Now, he's going very slowly here, so please follow. We know that the law is spiritual. See that? The law is spiritual. But I am carnal. The word is fleshly. Sold under sin. That's why he's fleshly. Fleshly has to do with enslavement to sin. So he is going to be talking now about spirituality, or that which is spiritual, and that which is carnal or fleshly. That's the two terms he introduces here. All right? Paul introduces now his personal experience to show that the law is hopeless as a means of deliverance from the power of sin, even in a believer's life. You see, Paul is trying to show again the importance of grace. He's saying you cannot be saved by the law, nor can you be sanctified by the law. The law cannot produce spiritual life, nor can it maintain it, sanctification. That's what the Galatians were doing. Remember Paul started, O ye foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, you want to end up in the, in the law. Remember? That's what he, this is what he's talking about here. How can you be saved by grace and continue to be saved by law? Paul is teaching, no, you were saved by grace and you're going to be kept by grace. All right? Nor can it maintain, uh, maintain uh, uh, salvation. However, because the law is defective, not because the law is defective, but because of the carnality or fleshliness of sinful defect in man. Man has that sinful defect within him, even as a Christian. You see? Even as a Christian. The big question is, at what time in his life is Paul alluding to? Some say the term carnal or fleshly shows that he is a new believer, not yet experiencing the joy of victory in Christ, and that only a Christian could make such an assessment of his spiritual condition. Some people say, man, an unsaved person couldn't have this kind of understanding Paul is saying here. And because the word carnal is used, that word normally refers to a person who is a Christian, carnal Christian. Others say, however, that the phrase sold under sin, because he says he was sold under sin, shows that he is still unsaved. Because it cannot be said that the Christian is sold under sin. Because you're supposed to be redeemed from sin. You can't be sold under sin and redeemed at the same time. 
and and so we have this who this big discussion as to whether he's talking up to this point uh, as an unsaved person or a saved person. I believe we get some help in answering this dilemma by noting the fact that Paul is making a comparison between the spirituality of the law and the fleshly aspect of his person, which according to chapter 5 is his body in which the principle of sin still resides. In other words, Paul is saying that the principle of sin resides in his body. His body. He makes that clear in chapter 5. The body of sin. The fact that he's using the present tense in this verse, present tense, would seem to indicate that he's speaking of himself as a Christian at the time of writing. At the time of writing, looking back. Alright? This would mean that what he is saying here is that even as a Christian, his body, the body of sin, is still controlled by the sin principle. Now, this is an important teaching. Because it's, and it's misunderstood. And very difficult to really comprehend. He's saying this body is still in some way controlled by the sin principle. In other words, this body is supposed to be dead. Alright? In, in, unplugged from the old life. But Paul says, there's still something left in there that prompts a person to sin. Alright? The I, now this is where it becomes a little technical. The I then, when he says I in the text, would be referring to his body of sin, not himself as a new man in Christ. But he's still responsible for the actions nonetheless. Because he realizes he's one person. But he still realizes that that new man, that inner man, has the separate reality, if you want, from his body that has this sin principle within it. That's what brings about the conflict. How can this still be alive in this body that is supposed to be now entirely belonging to Christ. This is where the problem comes. This is where the struggle comes. And this is why when you read this passage, you got to see Paul, in one sense, separating the true self from the body of sin. Alright, let's go through it. This indwelling sin principle in the body produces a conflict or struggle. Verse 15. Notice what he says. For that which I do, I allow not. In other words, he do not approve of it. For what I would, in other words, what I would like to do, I do not. For what I hate, what I do not approve of, that I do. Now Paul, as a Christian, is looking back to his experience as an unsaved person. As a Pharisee struggling to please God. He was still struggling with this. And so he comes to two conclusions. Number, number one and verse 16. If then I do that which I would not, which I do, I do not approve of, 
I consent unto the law that is good. In other words, he agrees with the law with what it says about sin. Therefore, the law is good. He agrees with the law what it says about sin. Therefore, he sees the law as being good. Now he goes on. The law is not responsible for his failure or his inability to keep them. The sin principle with him is within his flesh. Paul is not condemning or criticizing the law, but he is pointing out the weakness of sinful flesh to do good and its power to do evil. Now, as I say, this is really a, a deep truth here. Paul is addressing the problem that we have in our Christian life with the promptings to do evil, although we regenerated. He's saying that something is left into the body of sin. That is, the vehicle that we sinned with that still prompts us to sin. You know, it's like, let's go back to the doll baby. Remember I say that the baby is going, walking, crying, and all of a sudden it stops. We look at it and we say, the battery dead, right? But then I put my finger on my tongue and I touch it, some part of it, and I get shock. It isn't walking, right? But there's still a residue of that power there. And I get shocked with it. You see, that's what Paul says. Something of that power is still in there that now and then shocks me. You see? The second deduction from the fact of this inner struggle is in verse 17. Notice now. Now then it is no... Now this is where it really becomes spooky. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He personifies sin. The sin principle that still dwells in his body of sin. Now notice, he separates it, doesn't he? I and sin that dwells in me. He doesn't see the sin dwelling in him as being him. Who he is in Christ. This is all in the present tense. Paul separates sin and self as a new man in Christ. He separates sin and self. He recognizes two principles of power at work within him. But he also realizes that he is only one person. Therefore, he is responsible for whatever actions are performed by his, the members of his body. He is saying that the indwelling sin principle of nature is powerful enough to overcome the Christian's will. In himself, he cannot resist it successfully. This is a struggle. As a new man in Christ, a true I, he recognizes that in this body, there's a sin principle still alive. And at times, that could overcome the I, the true I, who that he is. And he has a problem with that. You see? Notice what he says now. For I know that in me, I see, he qualified, that is my flesh, not the I in Christ. You notice that? That's the me in my flesh, that's the sin principle in my flesh. 
dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not. For the evil which I would not that I do. Now he's talking, there's a Christian here now. Paul is not saying, but let's clarify something. Paul is not saying that as a new man cannot do good. That is, he cannot do good as a new man. But rather, the flesh principle within him cannot do good. Because remember now, he just separated the I from the flesh, the prince principle. He's saying this, he's saying this flesh principle within me cannot do good. Cannot do good. His conclusion, therefore, is that sometimes the sin principle within him gets the best of him as a believer and causes him to sin. Verse 20. Now, if I do, listen to this now, because it gets a little more spooky. Now, if I do that I would not, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Do you see the separation? Now, he's still responsible because he's only one person. But yet he's saying... This sin principle within me is not the new me, is not the real me. And that's where the struggle comes. He is saying now, listen to this, as a complete person, he can speak about the fleshly me that is still dominated by sin. And the newer spiritual me who desires to do good or please God. The will... The desire is there within the spiritual me, but so also is the will within the fleshly me, making it difficult to always do what the real me wants to do. Sometimes the old fleshly me takes control. That sounds familiar to anybody? Huh? Yeah. He's still responsible though. You can't say that's the old man who did it when you sin. It's you who did it. That's, the, that's where the struggle comes. Now, here is a summary conclusion because it goes on to the argument. The problem then is not the law, but the strength of the indwelling flesh. Verse 21. I find then a law, a principle, that when I would desire to do good, evil is present with me. In other words, I, he says, I also sense or experience a resistance to the good I want to do. You see? It's still there. Now you think as a newborn Christian that you always won't go to prayer meeting. Right? You always have to die. No, people, no man, stay in bed. You tired. You know what I'm saying? So you find that struggle. Paul is describing a person who has been saved, but who has not yet experienced a practical outworking of the fact. That he or she does not have to be dominated by either sin or the law. In other words, Paul right now has the knowledge, he knows what happened, but he hasn't experienced the power. Knowledge alone does not bring power. This could actually be referring to Paul's years in the Arabian desert, right after he was saved. As he was adjusting to his newfound faith. Remember he went for three years or so in the, in the desert. Paul says in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. 
But I see another law in my members. That's the body of sin. Warring against the law of my mind. That's where spiritual truth is understood and illuminated by the Spirit. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. He says he sees this struggle going on. He sees it. He understands it. But yet he is still brought into captivity by that which he does not want to be in captivity to. The old sinful body. He has one kind of law in the inner man, that's the new man who really is in Christ, and another law in his members, that's his body. This law is able to capture him at times and cause him to do its bidding even when he does not want to do it. He thinks and desires one thing, but he does another. Have you all experienced that? Paul himself went through it. This is the dilemma of the Christian. Here is the root problem. The explanation for sin in the life of the Christian. The problem is not in the law of God, but in my own weakness. The weakness of the flesh. Sin has the power to use good things like the law to overpower the flesh of the Christian and reduce sin. Flesh can use good things to cause me to sin. That's true of Christians as well. They do good things for selfish reasons or whatever. The dilemma of the Christian described by Paul in Romans 7 is not like the dilemma of the non-Christian in Romans 1, chapter 1 and 2. Just as the unbeliever cannot produce righteousness by his own works, neither can the Christian. The difference between the Christian and unbeliever is that the Christian actually desires to please God, but is not able to do so in himself by works, while the unbeliever could care less about being God. That's the only difference. But the same principle holds. Uh, when it comes to works. The struggle results in spiritual despair and frustration. Verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That's the body in which death is contained, the body of sin. That is the body in which the sin principle lives. Paul, representing all Christians, is at the point where he finally realizes that he cannot produce righteousness or be victorious over sin or all the demands of the law in himself. The same point a sinner must come to before he or she can be saved. The realization that he needs Christ. In other words, the same way a sinner who comes to realize that they're lost and they cannot do anything to save themselves, they know that they must come to Christ. Paul is facing the same thing as a Christian for victory over this fleshly body, this principle of sin. He realizes that he cannot do it himself. He needs Christ. He cannot save himself by works. Paul is now saying that the same is true with regards to the Christian and victory over the old self. He cannot do it himself. How then is it possible? He says, victory and deliverance comes to Christ. Verse 25, I thank God.
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says the same way the sinner has to come to the point say, I need Christ to be saved, I cannot save myself. The same thing is true with the believer who is struggling with sin in his life. You realize you cannot overcome it yourself. You need Christ as well. He goes back to chapter 6 and the first six verses of chapter 7. It is true our relationship with Christ. So then, he says, with the mind I myself, now notice this, my true self, the new man, served the law of God. But with the flesh, served the law of sin. Because that's the only one that the law of sin can serve. In other words, I am still responsible for my actions as a person. When I sin, I am responsible. I cannot blame my old man by giving in unto him. That's what Paul is saying. All right? So he's saying that there is victory and he found it in Christ. Victory over sin. This sin that indwells the old body of sin, this victory over it, we don't have to be overpowered by it. He says it's in Christ. And then he goes into chapter 8. And that's where we have deliverance. Alright? So you got to wait till chapter 8 to get delivered. 